and welcome to Rationally Writing. I'm Daystar Eld. And I'm Alexander Wales. And this is episode 39, Children in Fiction. So, why would you ever include children in fiction as the main characters? I mean, first of all, if you're doing a children's story, children can relate better to children than to, say, a 30-year-old man. Other than that, I think that they're very narratively convenient in a lot of ways. It's like you're playing a, a game of D&D. You don't usually start at, like, level 7, because then everyone has, like, backstory that you mm-hmm. need to get through. Whereas if you start at level 1, everyone has just been their first adventure. And so you, it's sort of the fish-out-of-water type thing. It's the same reason that that's very common, is because if you include a child, and we'll probably have to talk about, like, what age a child is, 15 through, like, 17 is very common as, like, a teenager, just because they're such a blank slate, or they can be, like, without, like, straining credulity, right? Mm-hmm. And can see everything with, like, a fresh eye and um, aren't really tied down with attachments at that point in their life. Yeah, as adults, they have... There's the expectation that a lot of things have already happened to them, whereas as kids, there, are, there isn't that expectation. It's almost like a blank slate character that just has, like, the personality intact, but not a lot of the major life life events that you you expect to read about about an adult character. Yeah. And for an adult character there are there are these plot threads in the background, right? That just naturally must occur and like if you have someone who is in their 40s or something and they've like never had a romantic relationship, you need to I think by necessity put some narrative weight on that or if you're not going to you need at least need to explain like why that is. I just I think you would you would take narrative focus to deal with those things if you wanted them to be blank slate and if you don't then you sort of have these these character arcs that have happened in the past. I think mm-hmm. that's the other thing is that you can do a character arc a lot easier with a a child who has not necessarily learned all of the lessons you'd have expected an adult to learn. Mm-hmm. I think it's it's a lot less sympathetic in adults sometimes if they're if you're like if you're in your late 20s and you're learning um, this lesson that most people learn when they're kids. People just find that really unbecoming, whereas a child being selfish is uh, much more understandable. Yeah, there are definitely certain flaws that not only children can get away with more, but I want to say more interesting to see how, how children deal with that flaw. Like I'm trying to think of, a, of, of an adult character whose flaws, who, where one of their flaws is selfishness. I yeah. Can't, I can't really think of any. Jack Sparrow? <laughs> And, anti-heroes yes anti-heroes uh, can definitely be selfish yeah yeah and yeah. That, that was his character arc through that movie uh that was right i think an exceptionally well-written character at least in the first in the first movie uh, that's, yeah. that's really hard to do even if you have an anti-hero because they have to be like charming and very likable and then also have this growth arc that you would expect them to have had if they were going to have it, have it by that by that point in their life. Right. Not as a character arc. Having selfishness as an intrinsic part of their character is, is kind of what I meant. Because that, that's a very good distinction. You know, if some if a character is selfish as a kid and then they remain selfish by the end of the story, that's stranger than if they're an adult who's selfish and they remain selfish at the end. Right. Because as an adult, their character might be... Like, if you're the... If you're like a... Did you ever read um, Gentleman Bastards or... Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like any any kind of story really with like characters as thieves as their profession. Um, like obviously they're going to, well not obviously, but they're probably going to remain thieves by the end of the story. And any growth that they undergo is going to come about in different ways. But a child who starts selfish and ends selfish, you know, like 
even lovable rascals like Tom Sawyer, you know, they they cut out most of the of the rascaliness. Well, not most of it, but the the more extreme parts of it by the end of the story. Yeah. If I remember if I remember Tom Sawyer correctly, didn't he like realize he was kind of a dick? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so let's let's talk about the big problem with writing children is that uh the main criticism that I think people are likely to levy against you is that uh children don't act like that. Mm-hmm. People have very specific opinions on how children do or do not act and uh that's a it's criticism that gets levied against uh, Harry Potter and the methods of rationality a lot, which I don't really there are in-story justifications for a lot of that, but it's kind of a delicate thing to talk about. But in when whenever people, you know, it it's it's easier to write adult characters because they can talk to some extent how you talk or how people in your life talk to you. And if you don't have children in your life, especially like children who are the ages of these characters, then it can be it can be difficult to get that voice right, that like that level of vocabulary and reasoning that people expect of a child. I feel like a lot of times when people will criticize a story for having unrealistic children, they sometimes don't know what they're talking about. Yeah. I obviously, as someone who writes children in um, their main story, I, I get a lot of the, to what degree is this, like, you're basically just aging up these characters in your head, right? Yeah. There's, so there's two things here, right? One of them is maturity and one of them is intelligence. Maturity of, of characters... I maintain is should fit the environment. It doesn't even always fit the environment. Like there are ridiculously mature 11 year olds that I've met uh, and I've worked with in my job. And like they, you know, I don't know their full life story, but sometimes there's no real reason for them to be as like mature as they are. But other times there is like very good reasons for them to be as, as somewhat old souls the way they are. Yeah. And this is one thing that I think a lot of people in, modern times, modern Western um, society, especially, maybe doesn't realize about how people can, like, children are, are oftentimes as mature as, as, their, as their environment dictates. So when you're talking about children in different time periods and different, like, settings, I think it's much, much more, it should be much more believable um, for them to be essentially, you know, acting like young adults. But even in modern times, even in the Western world, most kids can tend to be a lot more mature than people who don't interact with them regularly would give them credit for. Yeah. Is that partly dependent on on age? Like, my son's 20 months old. Mm-hmm. And he. one of the interesting things about seeing him growing up is that my wife and I didn't have many interactions with babies or toddlers mm-hmm. before this. And so he was not a, a, like an actual baby for very long. Right. Right. Like far, far less time than I expected. And now he's like talking and he has these full sentences that aren't very good English. And that's one of the things that I think about is I don't actually know where the benchmarks are for Mm -hmm. like Dark Wizard of Dunkirk has, I think, Henry and Sophia at five years old, at 10 years old and at 15 and then 16 years old. And I don't know that it's I didn't do terribly much mm-hmm. research i just you know thought back to conversations i'd had with five-year-olds but i wonder if that's a thing where people overestimate at a certain point and then underestimate at a certain point or if you just made a little graph of expected maturity to actual maturity over the lifetime of a child whether that would be be consistently off 
in one direction or whether there would whether that would change over the lifetime. Yeah, I think I mean most parents seem to expect a lot more maturity from their teenagers than they might sometimes have in this in the respect that like sometimes I have to remind parents they are in many respects young adults, but they also are still learning how to be adults. So they're still going to make certain mistakes that you would not expect another adult to make. And so like there's a there's a zone where they expect more maturity uh, than they actually have, but there's definitely also a zone where in somewhere in the I would say like 10 to 14ish range, maybe like 9 to 14ish range, uh, where a lot of parents I've interacted with about their kids have been like you know not treating them with the not treating them as though they have the maturity that they that they really have. Yeah. So yeah, I think it does fluctuate. It probably fluctuates from person to person for sure. Probably fluctuates from society to society and or just culture to culture. But yeah, it, this is one of those things about parenting from what I've learned about in family therapy is that like it's it's the interaction between parents and kids is an ongoing process of, of new expectations adjusting to new expectations and one of the many things that causes problems between parents and kids tends to be when like the parents don't update based on the new like quote-unquote phase that the the kids are in now yeah and I think like people in general who don't interact with kids that often probably have that to a much wider ex- uh, extent where they'll be reading about you know, kids in in middle school and saying, like, either they forgot what it was like. Well, they probably did forget really what they were like at, at that age. But what they remember of, of that age group might be very selective. Or if they have, like, younger siblings or, or neighbors or something with young people, like or people that age that they don't interact with extensively, but just once in a while. Since they only see them in one in one context, they don't really see them in other contexts. And they kind of see that one context that they experience them with as, like, all that they see of them. Yeah. So, like, Orson Scott Card had a had a foreword of Ender's Game once I read that was, like, he got letters from teachers who would say things like, you know, your children are, are very precocious and great characters, but the one thing that you should be aware of is that they don't, you know, they're, they're far too dirty-mouthed or something like that. This was, like, in the 70s or whatever. And, you know, as a teacher, I can tell you that we, um, children that young don't don't speak like that. And Orson said something along the lines of maybe not around you they don't, which is which is fairly true. Like I've had I've had parents who you know like as soon as they leave the room their kids transform into a completely different person. Yeah. And this is something that what interests me is that this is something that I think we're starting to see more of in movies and TV shows at least. So the whole like children being too mature thing or too intelligent for their age, I've never seen that criticism lobbed at Stranger Things. The film it just came out, and I haven't heard anyone say that about it. If anything, people phrase the the child the child actors in, in these are great, absolutely. Um, but the writing does treat them as young adults, like they're very mature, maturely written children, and also foul mouthed, and also like you know intelligent and all that stuff. Um, and like I've never heard anyone criticize the show or movie or Super Eight, um, which was another thing that was inspired by the same kind of young kids on adventure kind of story, but like modern, more modern than. E.T. or whatever would be, right? With, like, kids that would curse, kids that would think about sex, like, kids, like, all that stuff. And I've never heard anyone lob that criticism at them. Maybe because once they see it, it's different from reading it? I don't know. Yeah, well, and, like, it's actual child actors. Yeah. Which is kind of funny to me, because it's, like, obviously those child actors are mature and intelligent enough to be acting in this, acting convincingly Mm -hmm. in these, like, movies and shows. So, <laughs> yeah, the, but yeah, you're right. See, seeing it is seeing is believing in a lot of respects. So that that probably helps a lot. It's like it helps sell it. Yeah, I never I never watched Doogie Howser, which is 
the only thing that really comes to mind is like a TV show or movie about young geniuses or kid geniuses. I do remember thinking at some point um, that I, I, the only movies I'd really seen where kids that were young were given any kind of real like intelligence tended to be comedies. Yeah. Uh, not like non, not serious movies. There aren't really any serious movies I can think of where the kids are, are essentially geniuses for, for like any age, let alone their age. So yeah, that's, that might be why a lot of people find it hard to read HPMR, for example, and be, you know, yeah, and t- and take it as like, like Ender's Game didn't even do a really good job of selling intelligence as a as a central theme of the movie. Yeah, well, and it's one of those things where it's you know intelligence in fiction is already a pretty hard thing to actually portray, mm-hmm. rather than just saying, hey, this guy's a smart guy, just trust us on it. Right, right, but not even like even that. Even that kind of um... yeah, they they don't try it for that. Yeah, yeah. Unless it's you know most most children's movies are are comedies. They're not dramas, obviously. Mm-hmm. And I would say that most usually, if you have like an actual child rather than a a teenager, which I think is a little different. Like if if they're being written for a child audience, a lot of it is sort of wish fulfillment. I think there are a lot of systemic reasons why that's the case. Right. So, like in in terms of mm-hmm. in terms of what markets there are for that kind of media, sort of what the what those markets want from a book or or movie. Yeah. I guess I growing up I read I mean I read a lot of books. There was an Encyclopedia Brown. He was like sort of classically a smart guy, but mm-hmm. they always they always pair it with a certain level of immaturity. Not Encyclopedia Brown, but a lot of the other times it's there. Like that, Doogie Howser was like that, like super smart, but he was not. It was always the the humor element was that he was not like emotionally mature, and there were a lot of like social or political things that he didn't know, like internal mm-hmm. politics of the, this place that he was working, and a lot of the humor and the um, sort of character arcs of every episode came from that rather than. It, it was it was basically a way to to stick a child genius in a setting where they were not able to cope with a, a lot of the things and a lot of the drama and the humor comes from that. Gotcha. I mean he's he's smart and he's a doctor, mm-hmm. but that's the the show demonstrates that in a, in a lot of the ways that uh, medical dramas or medical comedies do, but it's sort of not the point of it, I guess. Well, it, I mean it doesn't make sense as a as a flaw that a young character would have is lack of experience with organizational politics and, and like drama that comes from that and things like that. Yeah. Or like having a girlfriend. Or right. Right. I'm pretty sure they had a very special episode about dealing with AIDS or something like that. Mm-hmm. All the shows did back then. But I mean, I remember reading um, wrinkles in time. Yeah. And that was, that was another one with like a young, young genius. I mean, the whole family were geniuses in different ways, but um, Charles Wallace, the main the main young genius of the of the family, like the young genius, even amongst the the young geniuses, was very solemn and and quiet. It was a central thing of his character that like the other kids didn't know how to how to react to him, didn't know how to treat him, and didn't know how to like he didn't know how to interact with them in normal ways, quote unquote. And so he got picked on a lot and stuff like that. So like things like that are are easy and and understandable flaws to give the young smart characters. Yeah. So I I think that there is some argument to be made that you can age up characters and mm-hmm. not have it be unrealistic or not, not have it trigger the audience into thinking that it's unrealistic. Right. You can just write an 11 year old as though they were a 16 year old 
or as though they were an adult with not very much experience of the world. And a lot of the time, people won't call you on it unless you're really egregious about it, mm-hmm. right? I think I think that HPMR, that's why people call that on it, because it's, I, I don't want to say egregious, but it is very apparent that that's what's, that's what's being done in that if you if you aged Harry up to like 18 years old and then put him in the body of an 11 year old and then had him not be smart or not talk about science or anything I don't think anyone would say anything about that it's 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 purely subject matter and intelligence based I guess mm-hmm. um so yeah we we do need to distinguish between just writing a sort of within a standard deviation of normal child and writing someone who is several standard deviations above normal as far as maturity, knowledge, intelligence goes. Because mm-hmm. that's not that's not quite equivalent to aging them up, right? Yeah. So in terms of how you would distinguish between essentially what you're saying is like a child that is more mature for their than their age, like on the more mature spectrum, a part of the spectrum for their age, versus a child that was essentially written as a 15-year-old, but just put in as, but just written as, an, like, on text as an 11-year-old. Yeah. Yeah. I would say, for, for me, the one of the major distinguishers would be, how interested is the 11-year-old in 11-year-old things, if that makes sense? So there's this thing that I, I have observed and tried to... Um, Try to put it some in some respect in in Pokemon, but it's harder to because they're not from the same world as us, um, and so a lot of the same like cultural things wouldn't wouldn't work. Uh, but like, even a very mature eleven year old still enjoys eleven year old things, quote unquote. Whereas a even a immature fifteen year old like wouldn't be caught dead doing certain things that they would identify or that their their friend group would identify as kid stuff. So what that might mean, I mean, it would differ in specifics from from time period to time period. Like there was this there was this period of time where um, when like Pokemon cards actually first came out and Pokemon like hit hit the U.S., um, there was a huge huge spike of of kids of all ages uh, enjoying Pokemon. And then like at some point when the kids who were uh, in middle school when Pokemon came out hit high school, like Pokemon was identified as a younger kid stuff yeah and then a lot of those same people would then you know once they got out of high school maybe um like start playing pokemon again like for me i mean i I just got bored of the games because they were really repetitive after a certain point like i it's never something that really bothered me but there's something that i notice in a lot of uh, my clients that are that are in their mid to late teens where the things that they enjoy don't tend to be the same kinds of things that the younger that their younger younger siblings would enjoy, or that my younger clients would enjoy, because they, quote unquote, have kind of moved past those things, if that makes sense, or they identify those things as as young people, younger people things. Yeah, I actually think that's where you'd run into a lot of trouble if you just take, if you were a nineteen year old mm-hmm. um, writing about eleven year olds, and you just were like, well, eleven year olds are basically like I am, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's one of the places where you'd run into a lot of problems because there are just certain things that 11 year olds really don't tend to be into unless they're you know it's fine to have exceptional characters but the problem is that you can't have too many of those or if you do you need to to justify it somehow yep so like having one 11 year old who is into all the things 
that you are into as an 18 year old, that might be acceptable. Maybe having all the 11 year olds and the kids in 11 year old kids in the school also be like you and the other 18 year olds, you know, uh, that probably you run into problems there. Right. So uh, in terms of concrete examples of this, that might be somewhat evergreen or timeless. Younger kids tend to be even mature. Younger kids uh, tend to enjoy games of make believe more. So going out with their friends, you know, running, jumping, climbing trees, pretending to be in the army, pretending to be, you know, soldiers or um, just in general games of imagination and pretend younger, like, even mature younger kids tend to be more into those things, whereas older kids would not be as much into those kinds of things. And that's actually kind of a somewhat interesting boundary to draw, because if they're not into those kinds of things, what would they be into instead? Like in modern times, you can say uh, they're into hanging out at the mall with their friends. You could say that they're into, you know, listening to music, rebelling in, in, the, in the stereotypical ways of like drugs or sex or, or alcohol or whatever it is. Um, but for like a medieval time period or like a fantasy setting or a science fiction setting, unless you're just like essentially copying the themes and, and like, you know, adding new words for whatever drug they're using or something like that, they might probably, they would probably be in a medieval time period, for example, they would probably be actually just more likely to be adults at that point. A 16 year old would probably be working in a tannery or in a blacksmith or something like that. Like they're an apprentice to someone. They're they're doing something. They're farming or something like that. Like they are essentially adults at that point. So like the the setting can also push back what it even means to be a kid in that setting. Yeah, I kind of wonder in like Western culture how much of that is, how much of what people or children like is is due to our grade divisions, mm-hmm. which are you know it's different depending on where in the West you are, but. I think high school is a much, like, that's a big chunk. That's like four years, but that's right. a, a very identifiable difference chunk of expectations as opposed to middle school or elementary school. And I I kind of wonder how those divisions originally came up, like who decided on those. Mm-hmm. I, I assume that it wasn't based on solid science, <laughs> right? That someone said, oh, here's like a developmental threshold that happens when most kids will be transferring from like... Right, eighth to ninth grade. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm pretty sure it's changed in somewhat recent history too. Uh, at, at, for me, at, a, at any rate, I'm pretty sure I was just just on the tail end of either one side or the other. I don't remember which. Where sixth grade used to be elementary school and it became middle school while I was in that in that age group. And yeah, absolutely. Like the 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 idea of like whether you're in a building with other kids that are still at a fairly young level. And the structure yeah. of your classes and, like, the expectations of the students and all these kinds of things, um, they they definitely will shape how people view themselves as, as and, and their age group and, like, what's kind of normal and expected for them. Yeah, you have a lot of uh, leeway, I think, if you're designing your own world mm-hmm. or even to some extent if you're, if you're working within an established canon just because of how different things are, right? Yes, like, if you're, if you're writing in, in uh, modern America then you need to be aware of the fact that most high schools will not have playgrounds on them. If you start writing with very little knowledge of the American school system and your uh, sophomores are hanging out on the high school jungle gym, um, people will just be like, what? Like, it's fine to go there sort of ironically Mm -hmm. or late at night or something like that. But um, that's not, you know, high schools won't have that jungle gym. Yeah. Typically they'll have like a, a track and a field 
or right. they play football or whatever. So yeah, getting getting the context is important in that respect. But yeah, also you you you're absolutely right that if you if your setting is a foreign time period or just completely foreign world, there's a lot more leeway in terms of how mature you make your kids because again, children are malleable in a very strong sense. They will conform to expectations set of them culturally with some exceptions. So child soldiers, you know, like right. they don't they, they don't want to be child soldiers. They're forced to be child soldiers and and as a result a someone who is 13 years old and has already like fired guns and and killed people is going to be very different from someone who's 13 year old and their biggest concerns in life are grades and playing video games with their friends. Yeah. But if you take that 13 year old, hopefully, you know, before too much has happened to them and get them out of that environment, you know, hopefully give them the right kind of people to talk to and, and situation to, to nurture them and help them as best you can, they would probably still really much enjoy like learning and playing card games. They would probably like very much enjoy like making friends and, and going to the park with them and playing. They might not all do so, but like tra- trauma does not always fundamentally change what it is to, to be a child. Yeah. Which is, which is a really important other point for, for I would say, writing realistic children. There's a thing that Stephen King said at one point, that children are they, children have a higher capacity for adjusting to their environments than, than adults do. Uh, not just in the sense of being, like like I was saying, being like matching the, the maturity level of how they're raised, but like in a lot of Stephen King books, children will like see a monster and be scared out of their mind from the monster and stay up all night worried about the monster eating them. And then, like, the next day comes, and they go to school. And, you know, other than maybe being a little bit more withdrawn and a little quieter, like, their life is still going on. Whereas an adult, the adult character in the same story sees a monster and, like, has an existential crisis for the next, like, two days. Because now monsters are real, and, like, what does that fucking mean? And, like, <laughs> this is like this is a thing of children are fundamentally more okay with the rules of the world changing on them. And just coming to terms with like the the unreal and the the horrifying and all these different stuff. And I think there's a certain there's a certain truth to that. Yeah, I don't I don't know if you read there was a Slate Star Codex post about predictive processing. Yes. That actually I I started thinking about that a lot in relation to to children, right? Mm-hmm. And part of why children have that sense of wonder is that their brain hasn't pre-processed all this stuff, mm-hmm. right? So like their predictive systems for figuring out the world are not as set in stone as like a 30 year olds. It's very rare as people get older for them to have like life changing revelations about things. I'm wandering into fuzzy science a Uh little bit here, but I think part of that is because we just, our brains are naturally set up for pattern matching. And eventually we have so many known patterns within there that all fit within this one framework that a lot of what we think is just Mm pre-processed, right? You look at a, a dog and you know that it's a dog, and you don't have that sense of not knowing what that thing is, Mm -hmm. right? So, like, my son is is 20 months old, and his brain's still doing all that stuff. He looks at an animal, and it takes him a while because he has to figure out what all the features are, and he has to build up this model and compare it to other things. It's not all, like, in his brain, ready to go, right? And he stops and looks at things basically all the time because it's, it's more data gathering. And I think that's part of why, you know, why kids are more malleable, certainly, and why they can respond to change both worse and better than adults at different times. Yeah. Like like worse in the sense that they've worked so hard on building up these models, and now this black swan is coming in 
which is like a parent's divorce or, you know, a death in the family or something that they both aren't equipped to handle and that their predictive processing did not have built into their model, right? right? It's it's like a shattering of their conception of the world that has to be rebuilt. But at the same time, they're much more capable of handling that because that happens to them with some frequency, yeah. right? They run into things that don't fit their model and they have to adjust these models of the world that they've built up very regularly. I think that's, that's for me, the most important, important part of being a kid and, and of like writing children is that sort of... They're still building their models. Yeah. yeah. That, that sort of understanding of, of child psychology, I guess, is that they're still building models of the world and every thing that they experience has a greater impact as compared to an adult, because that's, you know, more likely to be the first time they've ever encountered it, mm -hmm. first of all. And they just have such a smaller data set that they're working with. I don't know what, at what point that sort of tapers off and doesn't matter right. as much. Um, I would guess it's around 10, right? Just based on what I know of, uh -huh. of children. Well, there's an interesting thing that happens at that point also, actually. where So there's a thing that a lot of kids do. I think actually starts to taper off into the into the teens, like 13, 14 is where I've seen this start to really like be less of a thing. Before 13, there's a lot of questioning of of models. So like explicitly asking something like, why did he do that? Like why does why are they doing that? What are they doing that for? Sometimes in open curiosity, like just like genuinely like looking at people doing things and like what are they doing that for? For very basic stuff, right? For teenagers, like late teenagers, they've already seen most of the things that people do, so it's not like they're not being confused by somewhat mundane things, right? If if they see someone doing something they've never seen before, like I want to use an example that's like somewhat normal, but not something you just see very often. I don't know, some kind of like building maintenance, right? Like they they might wonder something like, hey, what are they doing there? You know, like I wonder what that person up there is doing. If they like look up at like a, a tall building and someone's like hanging on a, on a scaffold or whatever. But they won't ask it the same way that a younger child will, because they, they know in some level that, like, oh, they're doing something to clean a window or to, like, fix something or something like that. Whereas a younger kid will, will ask it in a much more, like, fundamental, like, they have no idea what's going on there at all. Like, they can't... Yeah. Their, their, their models of what that person is doing are, are almost blank. Uh, they're not inferring anything from past experience or just context clues very much. And so if, when you ask them questions like, what do you think they're doing, you get very different answers than you would from like a teenager. And this is also interesting in terms of like social cues. So uh, something that a very bright and very mature 11 year old recently mentioned was something that along the lines of when they say, they, they, they believe that their grandmother didn't like them. And one of the reasons they said that was because when they would say something nice to their grandmother, their grandmother would play it off and say, oh, that's not true. I'm not really like that or something like that. And so they saw this as them basically rejecting their kindness or rejecting their compliment. They didn't understand the concept of humility, like, you know, false or otherwise. They didn't expect the social expectation of being humble in that respect. They saw it as the person just, like, not wanting to be complimented by them. Even though they themselves, when when this pointed out, like, brought up in their, in their own behavior, would recognize that, like, if someone compliments them, they might say thank you, or they might just say, oh, you know, it's not really that good or something like that because they feel embarrassed by it. And so drawing that connection between how they behave and how other people behave is something that they didn't do intrinsically. So this this idea of like not really fully understanding social models of other people is another thing that like you'll see a lot in, in younger kids. Yeah. 
cognitive biases in general, mm-hmm. especially the, the more social ones, I think kids, I was going to say suffer from, that's probably accurate, yeah. uh, suffer from a lot more conformity. I think you see both more and less. I think kids go with the uh, a lot more than mm-hmm. adults do, especially in in social situations. They don't. They will. They'll, they'll do what the other kids are doing. I kind of wonder if if like Ash's conformity test has been done with children to see like how much of that is ingrained respect towards authority. But in general, one of the reasons uh, like child predators are dangerous is because children both are conditioned to and sort of don't have defenses against what I guess I would call model breaking mm-hmm. where, where someone's being duplicitous. A lot of children also do the, the typical mind fallacy where they believe something about themselves. And then that's how they, that's the, there's a sort of basic model for everyone else. Right. It's one of the things I, I kind of, I, w- I would rather write about teenagers than like younger children. Cause I have to think so much more mm-hmm. if I'm not going to be, I don't want to say aging them up because I, I, it's not that if I'm not going to be taking some liberties, I guess I would be for Dark Wizard of Dunkirk. I think five years old. I knew a five year old really well at the time or not, not at the time. I guess it was a couple of years before that, but I knew this five year old really well. So I based my five year olds on her and then 10 year olds. It was sort of like children trying to figure out the world around them and then at 15 it was sort of more figuring out who they wanted to be within that world mm-hmm. that was sort of what i what i tried to be thinking about as i was writing those sections and i don't know i will probably have to get more experience with kids before i figure out or release that to a wider audience so they can tell get me feedback, how, right? how poorly you are uh i did but that was sort of what i had in mind as i was going through is sort of mark the distinction in in years because it goes like it's like a a chapter or two for each until they spend most of the book as 15, 16, 17. Right. Do you want to talk briefly about, uh, or at length, I guess, about uh, Origin of Species? Sure. So the way I've been doing this is I, I described briefly in one of my frequently asked questions questions is the two rationalizations, that's not a good word to use for negative connotations. The two the two ways I see it right now is that both the child the, the the main characters are exceptional for their age, uh, and also that the culture and world that they're in is not like ours. The world is much deadlier than ours is. It required humanity to be in general smarter and more mature, both in the past and in the modern times. So there is a Allowance I'm giving myself in terms of how mature and how intelligent these kids are allowed to be. Partly also inspired by the fact that this is the canon age of the characters in the the first game. The choices in that respect are obviously either to just age everyone up and pretend that, you know, the ages given in the games and comics and and cartoons and all that stuff are are just, you know, not right. Uh, Which is a perfectly legitimate way to go about it. Or to just justify why they why it is okay for 11 year olds to essentially be sent out on adventures with monsters that can kill them and i went for the latter one because i I tend to enjoy rational fiction that does that more often that when it's possible justify the craziness um rather than change it and the ways to kind of help with this are one solo adventuring as an 11 year old that i'm okay with nixing i mean that's a game conceit more than anything because 
you know, the, it, the Pokemon are not a is not a party based RPG. The party is your Pokemon, so you are just a single person going around. Um, but you know, in the comics and the anime and stuff, they are definitely moving around as as uh, groups, which is better for safety reasons and all that, and and story reasons too. So, you know, having younger kids, if they are if they are being sent on adventures that young, which is fairly rare in this world, travel with others helps. It justifies the dangers that they go through by having like Cornet, uh, the coordinated ranger response network around for helping with emergencies and stuff. And in terms of how I choose like the line for just how mature to make them and just how intelligent to make them, I try to let the immaturity show at least at least as often as as it occurs to me. I don't think there's ever been a time when I was like thinking of something immature for one of the characters to do and then decided for them not to do it. I think every time like an immature thought comes up while I'm with a character or while I'm like writing a scene between the characters, if I think of something immature for them to do, it just feels like the better option for them to take. Because as, as kids, it makes more sense for them to make that mistake. So that's something that maybe I don't do often enough because it doesn't occur. I've, I've never like, I don't think I've ever actually sat down and thought like, how can I make these characters less mature? So maybe if I'm not, if, if those thoughts aren't occurring as often as they should be, like maybe that's a source for, for writing them more mature than they should be. But overall, I think that they are recognizable to the very mature 11 and 12 year olds that I know. And I've gotten some feedback in that respect from them too. So that's encouraging. And in terms of intelligence, they're definitely more intelligent than most kids that age are. Not just in terms of raw intelligence, like, but, because I don't think raw intelligence is, is that easy to quantify. Like, I think, I think a lot of the things that they do and learn, like, can be learned by kids that age. They just don't have the drive to do so in the world that we live in. Right. But, you know, like, in terms of, like, memorizing facts and, like, thinking about those facts and strategizing, like, 11 and 12 year olds are perfectly capable of learning all that information about some video game that they're playing. Yeah. And, and that's something that I think kids in the Pokemon world would be more than happy to do for the Pokemon around them in the world that they live in. And not just because they get to play with them, but also because their life kind of depends on it. Right. So, like, in terms of, like, like acquiring information and synthesizing it and, and being driven to learn new things and stuff like that, like, I think it's it's okay for them to do it in that respect. Sometimes they talk maybe more um, maturely than they should, or more, you know, bookishly than they should, even blue, which is something I'm trying to keep an eye on. But, yeah, yeah. I, I, think, I think that is the one the one area that, yeah. that for me is a little unchildlike. But the problem is that if I were to convert it to what in my mind is more like how a child would like deliver, I don't want to say exposition, <laughs> but like that, that, like how a child would deliver that kind of thing. Um, talked with children that age about like things that they're really interested in. And it's so disorganized what yeah. comes out of their mouth. And yeah. I, I just, I would not want to read it if it were like that. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. This is, so that's that's the the big trade-off I think there is children do get like super obsessed about various things. They get just like so into Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and then just learn <laughs> all the facts yeah. and that that memorization is part of exploring the world and developing mastery and they do that. They just sometimes are really boring about <laughs> how how they display that, I guess, or or they like yeah. assume that you know more. And there's this level of like it's kind of leaning heavily on dialogue is unrealistic. Right. Because dialogue being unrealistic is a trope of, of fiction that's kind of accepted because you don't want to hear a lot of ums and errs and, and like, pauses and... Right, right. Like, <laughs> yeah. So this is something that we're accepting in fiction in general. I think it just triggers more potential bothering, bothersome 
respects when it's coming from a child. Yeah. Because you want to convey information accurately and interestingly and succinctly, but kids don't talk like that, even more than adults don't talk like that. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, absolutely. So that's something that I've been trying to keep an eye on for Origin of Species, as, in, so, in so much as I can. Especially, I especially try to do so with the kids that are not the three main characters, or Aiko. Yeah. Yeah, so... This is something that that I have gotten some feedback on in both directions, but I think more or less I'm I'm happy with for now. Yeah, I think I think as far as as far as the um, balance of having incomprehensible dialogue, I think you're on the right side of cool. that. But it it is still one of those things where it is a balance. I don't know. I kind of I kind of well, I have to have a whole thing on dialogue at mm-hmm. some point. But I kind of go back and forth on what I like in my dialogue. I, I sometimes go more towards the realist side of it, mm-hmm. where people just have these ridiculous run-on sentences that <laughs> they pause in the middle of and sort of change their tract of what they're saying. And then other times I'm like, no, this just reads horribly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, there's a time and a place for it, obviously. But but page to page, it would get it would get so... So, like... It would just get so frustrating to read, read dialogue as as it's actually spoken. Yeah. yeah. And Origin of Species is... Well, I don't know if you'd agree with this. I would say heavier on dialogue than is maybe the normal. Yeah, it is. Okay. Yeah. So it would it would be even more... I, I would get on my nerves even more mm-hmm. in, that, in that respect. So, all right. That's it for now for Children in Fiction. Stay tuned after the outro music for an Audible ad and book recommendation. Thanks for listening. Hey everyone, this week I'm recommending It by Stephen King. While the movie that was recently released was a well-made adaptation, it's impossible for any single movie, or even pair of movies, to capture the world and characters of the book, which is about 450,000 words long, almost half the length of the Harry Potter series. The reason I'm recommending it this week is because it is like few other books in capturing the feeling of being children. The friendship, the fear, the tragedy, the lack of control, the imagination, all of it. There's also an evil shapeshifting clown monster, of course, an eldritch avatar of fear that is nearly as iconic as any other horror monsters out there, but that's not where I would say the heart and soul of the story is. For me, that has always been the characters. The children in It can at times be caricatures, but they're caricatures in the ways that kids can be caricatures, still developing who they are as people by committing to one dimension at a time while you watch the other two grow. And seeing them all do this together to fight an unspeakable evil that only they can face is fantastically done. As a rational work, it is the middle of the road. A lot of the monsters' true mechanics are left vague, and what magic there is in the story is as wild and unexamined as any. But there are great explanations for why it's up to the kids to deal with this instead of getting adults involved, and the characters do their best to understand their mercurial enemy and strategize against it without the gifts of particularly high intelligence or rationalist techniques. Mistakes feel organic and understandable, and there's little if any idiot ball holding. Some content warnings, the book does include a lot of grotesquerie in the forms of gory deaths, including of children. There's also a near the end that squicks a lot of people out for understandable reasons, but overall I think it is one of Stephen King's best works, and the first piece of fiction I think of when I think of writing realistic children. The second, incidentally, is also a Stephen King novella called The Body, which was adapted into the movie Stand By Me. You can find both of them at audible.com, if you still don't have an Audible account, you can get a free audiobook by signing up through their referral page at audibletrial.com forward slash rational. Thanks for listening.